Thank you. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, We will uh, together be considering the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 10 this morning. Revelation chapter 10, uh, all 11 verses. Uh, Last week, out of Revelation chapter 9... Uh, We considered the sounding of the fifth and the sixth trumpets. But now, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1, and continuing down through chapter 11 and verse 14, we're going to have something of an interlude after the sounding of that sixth trumpet and before the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which will take place in chapter 11 and verse 15. It kind of is very similar to what we saw in chapter 7. Uh, that after the sound or after the first six seals had been opened, uh, there was something of an interlude uh, in which we saw how God protects His church on earth, and He gave us a preview of heaven uh, prior to the opening of that seventh seal. Well, similarly, here in chapters ten and eleven, we have something of an interlude before the sounding of the seventh trumpet which will announce the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this interlude in chapters 10 and 11 tell us what the church should be doing while the trumpet blasts or those warnings of judgment are being sent to the world. And so, to emphasize, as we have several times in the book of Revelation, that what we have in Revelation 10 and 11 is not something which chronologically occurs after the sounding of the sixth trumpet, okay, in Revelation uh, chapter 9, but rather, uh, just as those six trumpet blasts occur during the whole period between Christ's first and second coming, so now we are reading what the church of Christ is to be doing between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it covers the same period of time. A few weeks ago, I used the illustration of uh, different camera angles that you might have on the same sporting event that occurs. And that's what we're given here. We, over the last couple of chapters, have been looking, our our focus has been on uh, the trumpet blast of warning of a coming judgment that will happen against the ungodly. Well, now in Revelation 10 and 11, we have a little bit different angle, a little different focus here upon the church of Jesus Christ uh, during uh, this time. So the camera angle now is on, as William Hendrickson says, the suffering power task and final victory of the church. So with that in mind, let's now read Revelation chapter 10. Uh, Let's hear this God's holy word. Uh, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, 
when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in, what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This ends this reading in God's holy word. Let's seek the face of God once again in prayer. Lord, our God, this chapter of Revelation is given to us for our comfort and our encouragement in the faith. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless the one who preaches your word now, that the word would be clearly explained and your truth proclaimed today from this pulpit. We pray for each one of us, O Lord, that we might be those who read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, uh, amen. Uh, the great uh, English Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible is the religion of Christ's church. Spurgeon rightly says that in every age, the true church is built upon the truth of God that is revealed in Holy Scripture. And one of the chief tasks of the church throughout the ages has been to keep the Bible absolutely central in its life and ministry. If you think to the early church, the first few centuries after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. The fight there was over what the canon of scripture was to include. That is, what is truly the word of God. Then in the time of the Reformation, the fight was over the authority of holy scripture. What is to guide the church? Is it the word of God alone or is it also the tradition of the church? Uh, Then, uh, after the Enlightenment uh, in the 1700s, into the 1800s and 1900s, there the fight was over the inspiration and uniqueness of the Scriptures against those who would view the Bible as a merely human book containing merely the religious experiences of an ancient people. Then the church had to proclaim, no, what we have here is 
the living word of the living God. In our own day and age, I think the fight is largely over the sufficiency of Holy Scripture. That is, we must continue to proclaim that the Bible is absolutely relevant to the concerns of 21st century uh, men and women. And we say that as opposed to those who would say that the Bible is merely a book out of date. It might be an okay book for you, but it's not an okay book uh, for me. You see, in every age of the church, and that was maybe perhaps a little simplistic uh, in its analysis, but basically correct, but in every age of the church, you see, there is a fight. The church needs to continually fight to keep the Bible absolutely central in its life. And ministry. Well, that is exactly what this chapter of Scripture is about today. Revelation chapter 10 is a passage which centers on a little phrase that you saw where it says, the little scroll. You see that in verse 2 and again in verses 8 and 9 and 10. Uh, this is really the diminutive form in Greek of the word biblion, which is simply a word which means book. It's where we get the word Bible from. And certainly what is meant by this little scroll in Revelation chapter 10 is the word of God. The little scroll here represents the scriptures, the gospel, the message that was given by inspiration of God and given to the people of God. That's what's meant here by the little scroll. And uh, really this passage uh, focuses on the place this little scroll has, what, what this little scroll is, the scriptures uh, in the life of the church. So we're going to divide our sermon today. It's going to be all about this little book, this little scroll. We're going to divide it into five different points now, first of all, we're going to consider the little book's authority. Uh, secondly, the little book's sufficiency. Uh, thirdly, the little book's fulfillment. Fourth, the little book's reception. And then lastly, the little book's proclamation. So again, our theme being this little book, this little scroll that is revealed, we're going to see its authority, its sufficiency, its fulfillment, its reception, and its proclamation. Well, first of all, the little book's authority. We see this in verses 1 and 2 of our passage. There in verses 1 and 2, we have described for us a glorious angelic figure. And this mighty angel that's described in verses 1 and 2 is one who has this little book that is open in his hand. Now, some commentators think uh, that this angel's description is so glorious that this must be describing none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, after all, Jesus uh, often appeared prior to his incarnation as the angel of the Lord, and uh, could he not be described as an angel here as well? Well, other commentators uh, say, no, that this isn't Christ. This angel, after all, is described as another mighty angel, meaning that he is like the angels who were described before in Revelation. And that, in fact, throughout the book of Revelation, uh, angels describe Christ's heavenly servants and not Christ himself. 
And what is more, they say, well, John doesn't bow down and worship this angel, which he ought to do if this were uh, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know. Okay, This may be a, a description of the Lord Jesus himself, or it may be an angel who is uh, representing Christ and who, as it were, comes from so close to the throne that he comes with all the insignia of divine glory. But that's certainly what we have described for us in verses 1 and 2. You'll notice that this angel is described as being wrapped in a cloud throughout Scripture. The cloud is that which represents divine majesty and glory. Think of that glory cloud filling the temple or the cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness. Uh, He's encircled with a rainbow over his head. Uh, This rainbow, speaking of God's covenant with Noah and of the Lord's Uh, grace and faithfulness and mercy. He has a face, we're described here, that's shining like the sun, that is in in divine splendor and holiness and purity. And legs, it says, with like pillars of fire. This refers to the Lord's uh, stability and strength. And so it comes with all these signs, as it were, of divine glory. And then this angel goes on to say in verse 2, is walking on the land and the sea. Think about it, children, for a moment. What a picture this is. I mean, imagine an angel so big that it has one foot smack in the Atlantic Ocean and the other foot in the middle of the Americas. What a giant angel uh, this is. It's a picture here of ultimate sovereignty. To have something under your feet is to have control Uh, or authority over that thing. I mean, later in the book of Revelation, we're going to read of a beast that is rising out of the sea and of another beast that's rising out of the earth. But here is one who has his feet on the earth and on the sea. He tramples them underfoot. Here is one with universal mastery and absolute power and dominion. Dear friends, this is describing for us the sovereignty and glory of our great and our awesome God. So we're reminded at the very beginning of Revelation 10, as friends, we have been reminded throughout the book of Revelation, that the one who is in control of this world is not some American president or American congress. It's not some Russian tyrant. It's not a Middle Eastern royalty. It's not some business conglomerate. It's not some giant corporation. It's not Hollywood who is ultimately in control of this world. The Lord is in control. The Lord is sovereignly in control of all things. He rules And he reigns. And John from his secluded island in Patmos, as he thinks about the persecuted church, a few Christians here and a few Christians there scattered about under the the thumb of 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 a godless tyrant at the time in the Roman Empire. Dear friends, John was looking up and he was remembering the one who has a foot on the sea and a foot on the land. And it is this sovereign Lord who has this little book in his hand. You see, what we're 
having described for us is that this book, the scriptures, is given to us by none other than the Almighty God. The scriptures are His authoritative book to us. The Bible, friends, is not some outdated, irrelevant relic. The Bible is not simply a religious text that describes the spiritual experiences of one group of ancient people, a text that should be equally honored with the other religious texts that we might have in this world. Rather, friends, this book, the scriptures, are given to us by the authoritative hand of the all-sovereign God who rules and who reigns. This is His word. Here He speaks. And this is why when He speaks, we must listen. This is a word for us to hear. This is a word for the whole world to hear. Well, the first thing that we must remember about the Scriptures is that it comes with authority, the authority of the sovereign God, the little book's authority. Secondly, now I want us to consider the little book's sufficiency. This little book's sufficiency. We find this in verses 3 and 4. Because suddenly this angel, in verse 3, this angel who exercises such dominion and has such a divine uh, 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 characteristics here in verse 3, we're told suddenly calls out with a loud voice. He's like a lion that roars. It's so loud. And when he speaks, suddenly, seven thunders sounded. Now these thunders that sound here aren't only loud, but these are actually spoken words which John understood. Okay, It wasn't just a a wordless roar, there was content to what these seven thunders said. We know this because John was about to write down the things which these seven thunders proclaimed. So John's about to write down this part of the vision, just in the same way that he wrote down the opening of the seven seals and he wrote down the seven trumpets. Now he assumes this is the next part of this vision And here are the seven thunders. And he goes to write it down. And then suddenly, as he goes to write it down, he hears this, verse 4. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Boy, that makes you curious, doesn't it? What were these seven thunders that John heard? And that you and I didn't get to hear. Perhaps you'd like to take a guess at what they are. Perhaps you'd like me to take a guess now. But actually, dear friends, guessing is what you and I must not do. Because if God wanted us to know what these seven thunders said, he would have had John write it down and record it for us. But he doesn't want us to know. And so he told John not to write it down. And this is a reminder, friends, that God does not reveal to us everything. 
God is an infinite God. Our puny minds could not handle everything which could be revealed about this glorious God. Do you remember Paul's words at the end of Romans chapter 11? Oh, he says, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Paul is saying, and John, as it were, is echoing here, you and I are incapable of plumbing the depths of our infinitely glorious God. You and I can't do it. And so, God has told us the things that we need to know and nothing more. Deuteronomy 29, 29, here is the key verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so I think the lesson here in verses 3 and 4 is that you and I would do well to pay heed to God's word. These are the words which God says we need to know. And we ought not to seek additional words from God, or try to imagine things in our minds which God has not told us in his word, but rather we are to pay heed to the things which God in his sovereign love and kindness to us has made known. John Calvin says it so well in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin says that the best limit of sobriety for us will be not only to follow God's lead always in learning, but when he sets an end to teaching, to stop trying to be wise. What wise counsel that is. We go as far as the scripture, but no further. Because we believe that the scriptures are an all-sufficient word of every word which God would have us to know for life and for godliness. But it's good for you and for me to remember as well that when we study Scripture, and what a thought this is, that in the Word of God we have, as it were, only the smallest glimpse of the infinite glory of God's being and the infinite wisdom of His counsels. He says, here's my book. Every word of this is true. This is all that you can handle right now. This is all that you need to make your way as a pilgrim through this world. But friends, what you have in the pages of Holy Scripture, as it were, is but just the smallest glimpse of the infinite glory and greatness of our sovereign God. There are seven thunders which were spoken, which you and I never got to hear. What a God this is. And so you see the hubris of those that would, as it were, uh, turn Holy Scripture back on God and tell him uh, uh, that this part or that part is not right or they have it figured out and the book is full of contradictions and this and that. Friends, we have but the smallest glimpse, even in the pages of Holy Scripture, into the greatness and glory of our God. Might we never forget that. The little book's sufficiency. Thirdly, now, thirdly, I want us to see the little book's fulfillment. The little book's fulfillment. And we find this now in verses 5 
through 7. Let me just read these verses. Uh, The angel then, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, he then raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. What's going on in these verses here? Well, uh, we read here that this angel then takes an oath. And the content of his oath is this. If you work backwards in uh, verse 7, the content is this. It is that the mystery of God, that is the gospel message, which had been announced to the prophets, and here I think it's referring to both the prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament, again, the writers of Holy Scripture. In other words, this gospel, which is revealed in Holy Scripture, was now going to come to fulfillment. And it's going to come to fulfillment in the blowing of the seventh trumpet. You see that? In the days that the trumpet call is sounded, this mystery of God, the scriptures, is going to be fulfilled just as was announced to his servants, the prophets. Now, the seventh trumpet, as we're going to see uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, the seventh trumpet announces the return of the Lord Jesus. And so it's with the return of the Lord Jesus that the judgment, that the wicked then are going to be judged. And the new heavens and the new earth are going to be established. And God's people are going to be fully redeemed in his presence forever and ever. What it's referring to here is the consummation of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's saying that that salvation, which is promised in Holy Scripture, is now going to come to its completion at the return of our Lord Jesus. The Uh, those who have not repented and believed on Christ are going to be uh, judged. And it's going on that day, the complete salvation of God's elect are going to occur. Uh, The gospel message leads us to look forward to this day. And so the angel is saying is that the scriptures are going to come to complete fulfillment. The Lord Jesus is certainly going to return. All of the promises that are made in Holy Scripture are going to be fulfilled. And to affirm the certainty of this, he takes an oath. Did you notice that? He swears by God. And he points out the eternity of God Okay, that he is the God who lives forever and ever. And he points to the creating work of God. He is the one who creates the heaven and what's in it, the earth and what's in it, the sea and what's in it. So in other words, that as surely as the living God will never die but eternally exist, and as surely as the the living God by his power at a word brought all things into being, just as surely this supreme sovereign God 
is going to bring to pass all that is written in Holy Scripture. That's the promise. Do you see the Lord's grace here? What he's saying to us is that not only does this angel, as it were, bring to us this little book and say, here you have it, the Scriptures, my revelation, all that you need to know. But now this angel comes and he assures us that everything that is written in these Scriptures is surely going to take place. It's true, and it's going to happen. What a comfort that is to us. And friends, we've already seen how much of the Scriptures have already come true and been fulfilled. Don't we have in the Old Testament how many prophecies of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Of His birth, of His death, of his resurrection, the whole sacrificial system and the temple of the Old Testament perfectly fulfilled in the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. Already with the coming of Jesus, the scriptures have been fulfilled. But haven't we also seen how the scriptures are fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit and in the conversion of sinners to faith in Jesus Christ and the building up of Christ's church? Are these not all things also which are testified to in the Bible? Have not the last 2,000 years witnessed the fulfillment time and again of God's holy word? Oh, how the Lord has taken care of his people. How he has blessed us, borne fruit in our lives, ministered to us by his Holy Spirit. You see, in all of these things we have the fulfillment of the Holy Scriptures. But what we can say now is just as surely as the Scriptures were fulfilled in the first coming of our Lord Jesus, and just as surely as they were fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the building of Christ's church and the Lord's providential care over His church, all which we have witnessed, dear friends, He is saying just as certain as that, that seventh trumpet is going to sound And the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he's going to reign forever. It's the promise, the assured promise that all of God's word is going to be fulfilled. It's a common saying in our our day and age. uh, A person will say, you never know what a day will bring. And there's an element of truth to that. You don't know tomorrow what's going to come. The Lord knows. You don't know. Dear friends, if you are a Christian, you might not know all the particulars of what's going to happen on Monday of this week. But if you are a Christian, you do know beyond all shadow of a doubt that there is the day that is coming. The day of the return of our Lord Jesus and the establishment of his eternal kingdom and of the judgment of this world. And so, friends, if we know that that day is coming... And all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled. Should we not live in light of it? Should we not live with the eager expectation and the sure promise that that day indeed is coming? Do you see, he points out for us here, the scriptures, fulfillment. The little books, fulfillment. So we've seen the little books, authority. The little books, sufficiency. The little books, fulfillment. Fourth now, We're going to see the little book's reception. The little book's reception. That is, we have seen what the scriptures are, but now, how is John instructed to receive them? And we find this in verses 8 through 10. 
verse 8 says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven, so still this same angel, spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll. And children, listen to what he's going to be told. And he said to me, take and eat it. What are you supposed to do with a book? Are you supposed to eat a book? That's exactly what John is told to do, to take this book and to eat it. Actually, there was an Old Testament prophet who was told to do the exact same thing, the prophet Ezekiel. Okay, And Ezekiel was told in Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 1, uh, basically this identical thing. There he was told, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. And so Ezekiel says, I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Well, what does this mean? that Ezekiel and now John were to eat this book. Well, I think it means this. The meaning is clear. That it means that this book, the scriptures, isn't something which should merely remain outside of you. That is, that it's not something simply that you own, that you own the book, or even that you know some of what the book says, that you have some intellectual understanding with your mind. But rather, the idea is simple, that this book is to come inside of you and to affect every aspect of your being and of your life. That it is to affect the innermost parts of your life. Just like Eating a nutritious meal gives you energy, affects the way that your body feels, the way that you live. So, eating this book is what gives you spiritual life. It affects you. It becomes who you are. I can remember when I was in seminary, I was a member of a church called First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Derek Thomas was... Uh, one of our uh, pastors. And I can remember frequently, before he would preach God's word, his prayer of illumination, he would say something like this. He would pray that we would read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. I prayed that today as well. Now, I didn't know this in seminary, but found out later that actually those words are from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And it's a beautiful expression, isn't it? That you and I would read, that we would mark, that we would learn, but that it wouldn't stop there. That we would inwardly digest the word of God. And that, dear friends, needs to be the mark of the Christian believer. 
that we are those who make this book our book. And so can I ask you, when you go to make a decision in your life, is the chief thing that you're thinking about, what does the Bible say is pleasing to God as I make this decision? That's inwardly digesting his word. Or to give you another example, do you meditate and think about the attributes of God that are found in Holy Scripture? Or when you are discouraged, do you take encouragement from thinking about the promises of God's word? Or do you daily give thanks for Jesus Christ? And are you passionate to promote his kingdom in the world? Each of those are examples of ways that we inwardly digest God's word and make it our own, where it becomes part of the warp and woof of our daily lives, of the way that we think and we live, of the things that we get excited about and the things that we're sorry about. It all has to do with God and his word and his kingdom. Like like John, we need to be those who eat this scroll. But when we inwardly digest God's word in this way, it then will come with a following twofold effect. And we see it in verses 9 and 10. John is told, Take and eat this scroll, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And so John, verse 10, does that very thing, and it's exactly as was described. As he ate the scroll, it was sweet as honey in his mouth, but when he had eaten it, His stomach was made bitter. And this is what God's word does when we inwardly digest it. On the one hand, it is as sweet as honey. Psalm 19 speaks of the law of God being sweeter than honey that is from the honeycomb. It's more to be desired even than fine gold. There is something about the scriptures that bring true joy and true happiness. We just heard in our adult Sunday school. Uh, hour of how uh, the missionary Robert Reed Cowley was first converted through one of his patients. He was a medical doctor. One of his patients was an old, die, an old dying woman, and Cowley was converted because this old, poor, dying woman had joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. She found a sweetness to God's word, and it had an impact on Cali. okay? And so it should on us. We should find a joy, a lasting joy, that comes to us as we feast on the glorious truths of God's scripture and know the forgiveness of sins and communion with God and the hope of everlasting life. But this same word that is as sweet as honey to our taste, and rightly so, he also says, is uh, bitter in our stomachs. That is, it can bring a tummy ache at times also. And this is true, and it's good for us to realize that when we feel this, that's exactly what the Lord said, that holding on to the scriptures will bring fresh joys, but it will also bring fresh sorrows in your life. 
as you are called to a life of self-denial, as if you are a Christian, you will experience persecution. You will be excluded from groups of friends that you once had. People will misunderstand you and alienate you. Or I think one of the greatest bitternesses and sorrows in the Christian life are those times when we tell the gospel that has brought us such joy to other people, people that we love, and they reject it. And it brings a certain bitterness and sorrow to our lives. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul said, that when he carries around in his body not only the life of the Lord Jesus, but his death as well. And at times, the Christian life is going to be, feel like a continual dying at the same time that it is this wonderful, life-giving thing. It brings both a sweetness to our mouth, but also a bitterness to our uh, tummies. That same joy and sorrow was found in our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who delighted in the scriptures from his youth and who found his greatest joy in doing his father's will. But he also was one who wept over Jerusalem. So you and I, when we inwardly digest the scriptures in this way and live by the word of God, we're going to know both the joys and the sorrows that it brings. That's the, that's the reception of the word of God. But now, fifth and finally, and with this we close, I want us to see the little book's proclamation. The little book's proclamation. And we find this now in verse 11, that after he had inwardly digested this word, we are told that he then had a mission to share this word with other people. He was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That is, he was to take this word inward to himself, but then out of that inward word that he felt, he was to proclaim a word to other people. And so it ought to be for the church of Jesus Christ today also that we both receive God's word, but then we proclaim this message to the world as well. It's what the Puritans used to call preaching a felt Christ. A Christ that we ourselves know, we then proclaim to other people. The 19th century Presbyterian pastor, Dr. Ramsey, said these words. He said that the testimony that is attended with the power of God is the testimony of those who have felt the power of Christ's death and resurrection and tasted the infinite sweetness of pardoning mercy and sanctifying grace and adopting love. This alone can enable you to take part in this work of the church. You must go to Jesus and take from himself the words of eternal life and feed upon them until their power invigorates your whole spiritual being until you are ready to bear the cross and utterly renounce the world for him and shrink from no labor or suffering to extend to others that are perishing the means of life and salvation. What a beautiful picture that is. And friends, that's what I long for my life, and what I long for the life of this church, but even more importantly, it is what our sovereign Lord Jesus desires of his church, that we would be those who so feed upon God's word and where that message so captivates our own soul that then we long to bear this message to 
the world outside of us. And so, friends, might it be that this church is always, always, always a missionary, evangelizing church. A church whose very heartbeat is that of seeing the extension of Christ's kingdom. A church who prays for the work of world missions and who gives and who seeks to reach out for our, in our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are there people that you long to share this message of good news with? Do you have a vision of this gospel transforming the community in which we live? Do you see, dear friends, we have at this church something which is so valuable that the vast majority of people that live all around us do not have and do not know. That is a life-giving, life-transforming, God-glorifying message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's being proclaimed here. It's being believed by you. Can we not have a passionate longing to see this same gospel advanced? It is to be proclaimed. And might the Lord cause that to be the very pulse beat of this, of this church. It has been in the past. Might it continue to be into the future. Of each one of us individually. You see this interlude in Revelation chapter 10. While the trumpet blasts are sounding in the world. What is the church to be about? The church is to be about the word of God. This authoritative, all-sufficient Word of God. Okay, this this word, uh, this word which uh, 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 is uh, uh, being fulfilled, this word which is to be digested, this word which is to be proclaimed. Might the Lord help us to love His word in this way. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for this portion of the book of Revelation and the way that you encouraged your church even in the first century to be faithful to your word, to your revelation, to the gospel message. And thank you that that continues to be the gift that we have today, this treasure which is in earthen vessels, this life-giving word of the gospel. Lord, might we be those who read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, and then proclaim to others this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing now our final hymn. Our hymn is uh, found in...